Last year's CHIPS Act was enacted to help the U.S. semiconductor industry. The law gave jobs to a lot of federal agencies, even the State Department. State received $100 million a year for five years to help secure the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. Federal News Network's Tom Temin learned more with the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs, Ramin Tului. And you don't often think of the State Department and industrial manufacturing types of topics. So what is the job of state under the CHIPS Act precisely? Well, as you mentioned, this historic piece of bipartisan legislation from last year, the Chips and Science Act of 2022, is targeted at restoring America's technological leadership through a renaissance in American high-tech manufacturing. And the members of Congress, Congress, when they passed the CHIPS Act, recognize that achieving that objective relies upon strong global partnerships. These supply chains that we have for semiconductors or global supply chains, our international telecommunications systems are also global. And so Congress, when they passed the CHIPS Act, set aside $500 million for the purpose of deepening those international partnerships. And specifically, they appropriated that money to the State Department through something called the International Technology Security and Innovation Fund. And so state will be implementing this fund as part of trying to realize the goals of the SHIPS Act. And this fund was not pre-existing with other dollars, but this is also a new fund then? Correct. That's a new fund created by the SHIPS Act. And what will the State Department specifically do here then with it? We have basically two main lines of effort. The first line of effort is strengthening these global semiconductor supply chains. And in that line of effort, we're looking to do four different things. The first thing is to help secure those critical raw materials that are necessary inputs to semiconductor manufacturing. Second, we'll be looking to diversify what is called the downstream component. So after semiconductor chips are manufactured, they need to be prepared to put into the products that we use. And a lot of those activities we anticipate will not take place in the United States, but in other countries. In Asia, we hope also in the Western Hemisphere. The third area of focus is to coordinate these policies related to semiconductors with our allies and partners. Last week, it was announced that the EU is proceeding with something, the European Union, with something called the EU CHIPS Act. Other countries are taking efforts to support their own semiconductor manufacturing, and we want to make sure that these efforts are complementary and aligned with one another. And then the final area under semiconductor supply chains is protecting critical national security elements of these important technologies. In the second area, which is for secure IT systems or uh, information technology and communication systems, we're looking at three lines of effort. First of all, we're looking to help other countries develop the capacity to govern their telecommunication systems and secure them. Second, we're looking to try to find ways using USAID, the U.S. Trade and Development Agency, the Exim Bank, to try to support investment to deploy these systems, deploy trustworthy telecommunication systems. And then finally, similar to global semiconductor supply chains, the third line of effort is going to be to defend against cyber risks from malicious actors. And so those are some of the activities that we'll be doing with this fund. 
Now, the supplies that we were talking about, there are three basic semiconductor manufacturing supplies. There's the substrate, there's the chemicals that are deposed on that substrate, and then there's the packaging to make it into a useful device. These are largely foreign sourced, and I'm surprised, I guess, I would have thought Commerce Department would have been the lead here. We're working very closely with Commerce. As you know, the majority of the CHIPS Act funding that $50 billion-plus appropriation goes to the Commerce Department, and they're leading particularly these domestic efforts to support U.S. manufacturing of semiconductors. And then in our foreign engagement, we are partnering very closely with the Commerce Department, identifying the critical materials that are going to be important to U.S. industry, working with them on mapping various global sources, and also working with them to map the downstream elements, as you referred to, the packaging, which is that process of preparing the silicon to put into these products. So this is something that we're doing in close cooperation with the Commerce Department, but then, of course, deploying the established diplomatic lines of communication that the State Department has. We're speaking with Ramin Taloui. He is Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. And how does this map across the way the State Department is structured overseas? You've got the embassies and consuls, and generally you talk to other people from the governments of those nations. How does industry get tied into this government-to-government kind of model that tends to dominate its state, or that's really your mission? I think that the COVID pandemic illustrated just how important the collaboration with other governments, but also with the private sector, is to the economic well-being of our citizens. So during COVID, we recognized how vulnerable these global supply chains are for critical goods like medical personal protective equipment, other medical devices, even inputs to our auto sector. A lot of were disrupted by the challenges facing uh, global supply chains, including in semiconductors. And so our missions overseas have establish the habits of not only engaging with governments, but also with private businesses in the private sector. And I would say those habits are also ones that have been a part of what we do here in the main state in Washington, D.C., in particular my bureau for a long time. We're the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. And so we have the lead in the department for engaging with the private sector. As we roll out this ITSE fund, the International Technology Security and Innovation Fund, Our collaboration, not only with our posts overseas, but with the private sector, is going to be extremely important. Already, we've had a lot of engagement with industry groups and semiconductors, individual companies. When I've traveled to the West Coast, when I've traveled to Europe, Japan, Singapore, meetings with the private sector has always featured very prominently. And is the government of that nation present when you have these meetings? I'm thinking of, say, suppose a certain mineral is required to make high-end chips, and it comes from Africa. When you go to an African nation, it's not quite the same as going to a European Union nation, and you want to talk to a company, and who knows what the connections of that company are to that government. I mean, we can understand this in Europe and the United States, maybe a little muddier in a place like certain African countries. What would happen? How would you initiate that, and what would the conversations look like? Your question, Tom, really highlights why the State Department's role is so important here. There is a lot of diversity as we look across the world on the relationship between government and business, government and natural resource management, government and the industrial manufacturing capacity. 
And so the answer really differs by different country. We've found that we've done engagements of various kinds sometimes. And I would say in my experience, it's typically been with government officials on the one hand and private sector officials on the other. But that's not universally the case. And I think the key to our success in this endeavor is recognizing the kind of engagement that's most likely to generate the outcome we want, which is diverse, reliable, robust sources of the raw material inputs into semiconductor manufacturing, and then diverse and resilient downstream capacity for processing that silicon into the products that we use. And the $100 million a year, $500 million, nice round number, it sounds a little arbitrary. How will that money be applied, actually? What do you need the money to do? Well, there are a number of different lines of effort which I described. So, for example, in the downstream processing capacity uh, and this goal of trying to diversify the various places in which that downstream processing of the silicon uh, wafers, silicon chips can occur. One thing is we have examples of countries that have done this very successfully. And so we want to understand, well, what were the enabling conditions in those countries that enabled them to become leaders in that kind of packaging, testing, and assembly? And once we can identify what are those attributes of the policy environment, we can help have a dialogue with other countries that could be part of that supply chain as part of diversifying the universe of countries that are able to do that processing. So that would be one example in this downstream component. On the policy dialogue component, you know, there's going to be the need to bring in certain types of expertise into the U.S. government in order to to have those kinds of discussions. And so as part of this CHIPS Act funding, we're anticipating hiring 18 new experts at the State Department in order to conduct the analysis in the various types of lines of effort that I've described, both on the semiconductor supply chain side and on the secure information communications technology side. So those are some of the ways in which both programmatically and internally we'll be looking to deploy these funds. And by the way, am I correct in assuming that the supply chain for United States chip manufacturing does encompass most of the continent, maybe not Antarctica? Well, where these various minerals are, is very, very diverse. And then the places where we hope that they can be processed is also something we want to increase the diversity of. So this is really a global effort. One principle that we are acting on is that achieving success of the CHIPS Act is not something that the United States can do on its own. It has to do in partnership with other countries to get the jobs, the manufacturing jobs that we want in the United States out of the CHIPS Act, to get that security of supply for U.S. consumers and businesses that we want out of the CHIPS Act requires these international partnerships. Ramin Taloui is the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the State Department, speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for 
young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.